Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Our guest on today's podcast is Sean Kilbreath. Sean is a retired police officer, a current police resiliency speaker, a member of the New Hampshire Critical Incident Stress Team. Sean, I know you also do a lot of work with comfort dogs and you're involved with first responder retreats and many other things. So we want to hear all about that, all the good work that you do. First, if you could take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience, sir. Sure. Well, thank you for having me tonight. I'm truly honored to be here with you um, on Hope Beyond the Badge. Uh, my name is Sean Kelbreth, and I am originally from Massachusetts um, by way of Vermont for a few years and then back to New Hampshire, um, where I was am actually still currently a police officer for the past 26 years. Um, serving both on the Bedford, New Hampshire Police Department uh, and in the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And now as a community engagement coordinator, like you said, for Forge VFR, uh, providing mental health services for veterans, first responders and their families. Um, and as a community engagement coordinator, it's my job to be the, the name and the face of the company out in the community that we're trying to serve, um, which is that veteran um, and first responder population and their families. So wow. I've been doing that for about a year. Wow. Good for you. I mean, this sounds like you're totally emerged into what you're doing now. It's, it sounds like a, a, a new purpose, right? It's, you know, if, if you were to have asked me five years ago where I would be right now, and if someone were to tell me that you're going to be surrounded by mainly uh, female clinicians uh, in a mental health company, uh, working pretty much as the only police officer, um, I would have said you were crazy. Um, it, but it's just amazing to kind of see where your journey takes you as you start um, doing the peer and the SISM work. Um, and it's it was, you know, just a natural fit for me. But I am totally amazed that I'm here, but I'm also honored that I'm here. Yeah. Um, and now it's, you know, I, I was telling someone the other day that when you get involved in peer work, it's not just a job, it's a lifestyle. As, as you know, Linda, when you start trying to advocate for large groups of people or small groups of people, it becomes a lifestyle. It's a 24-7 endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree with you. I mean, myself and Jay, I mean, our conversations, that's all we talk about right is is mental health and 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 first response and and veterans who whoever we can help and um yeah it becomes something that's just a, a bigger part of you right it's it's everyday part of us um i can't wait to get into all of this conversation but i want to go back a little bit um first because we will miss out on really 
basically what got you here in the first place, right? So we want to we want to hear a little bit about that. Um, as your journey as a police officer, you said twenty five years, right? Yeah, uh, actually twenty six years. Twenty six <clears throat> years as a yeah. as a police officer. Are you retired? Yeah. Are you retired now? So I retired from the Bedford Police. Uh, I'm still an auxiliary there. And okay. when I left the sheriff's department a year ago, um, I was the uh, peer and wellness coordinator over there. Um, and I'm still on as a part-time deputy there. So if there's a critical incident that comes in or somebody needs some peer support, um, or if there's something that comes up that they need extra personnel, they would call and you know I'd answer the call still. Wow. Good for you. For you so you're still connected and still um you know staying with the times of of what's happening right i right. love that let's go back let's go back um to theirs um as far as you becoming a police officer um is that something that you always wanted to do you know ever since i can remember you know you always have that typical story where you know, I can say as a kid, I always emulated police officers and I always held them up on a pedestal. And, um, you know, I, my two brothers and I, um, we would always play cops and robbers and I always had to be the police officer. And, you know, it's funny, I'm going to date myself, but my brothers and I used to play chips uh, on our bicycles. So we pretended we were the California Highway Patrol on our on our bikes, chasing mm. each other around the neighborhood. Um and just growing up, you know, I had a very, very good sense of what was right and wrong and what was honorable. I was raised by a very close um, father and mother. My father was a veteran. My two uncles were veterans. Um, and we used to joke around with my father. We used to call him Johnny Law. Um, and that was a nickname we gave him because he always did things by the book. He wasn't a police officer. He was always in the car business, but um, he always instilled in us a sense of right and wrong and what was honorable and always doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of laid the foundation to uh, becoming a police officer. And then when I went to um, the university of New Hampshire, uh, I joined the Explorer program at the UNH police department uh, during my senior uh, junior and senior year. And that really kind of propelled me into really wanting to be a police officer. Um, and when I got out of college, um, you know, it was at a time where to become a police officer, you're vying for these positions that hundreds of people are vying for. Um, it's not, you know, like it is now where you're, it's the tables are turned where they're looking for people and they're, yeah. they're having retention problems and recruiting problems. You know, I remember when I first got the job as a part-time police officer in Bedford, there was a gymnasium full of people. And they whittled that down to five of us for five part-time positions. And I think the reason that they did that back then was they could kind of see how you reacted to the work as a part-time police officer, but the, the department could kind of get a feel for who you were before they put you on full-time. So I did that for a year and within a year was hired full-time with the Bedford um, police department and went to the uh, Academy in 1996. Wow. Good for you. I, I've heard that in previous interviews um, with, you know, police officers, you know, from back then when they were, um, you know, wanting to, to sign up um, to apply or whatever. And it was like, as you said, you described it like gym, you know, size um, areas full of people. And they were only looking for a certain amount of people in there, but it was 
the the rooms were packed. And um, now if there's a small little, you know, office space um, there um, and there's, you know, a small amount of people there, that's it. Um, right. Because it, it's a different, it's a different time now, right? It's um, somewhat, you know, difficult um, to, to want to become a police officer, um, especially with what's on, you know, TV and, and, and the media, um, for sure. So um, when you became a police officer... Um, tell us about that as a young cop. Tell share with us what that felt like to you. Um, you know, I've heard also other guys saying, "Okay, I'm, you know, police officer now. Bring on the cartel. Um, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get all the bad guys. We're maybe even catch a serial killer. That type of stuff." Um, but share with us your experience. What was that feeling like for you? Um, becoming an officer. You, you know, I think a lot of us young police officers, when we first start, we have a very romanticized view of what being a police officer is. Yeah. And back, back then, um, you know, there was still a lot of respect for the police and in their authority and the things that we had to do as a police officer were, were accepted. And, you know, I think having that kind of authority was part of it. You know, you feel more important. You feel like you're in the know. Um, and you really have a front row seat to society. And it's a very exciting seat to have because you see things unfolding that the general public will never have access to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always thought to myself, geez, here I am being entrusted with this authority uh, on one of the greatest countries on the planet. And I'm here to uphold the Constitution and people's rights. Um, and always looked at it as a huge responsibility and was, was honored to have been picked, you know, why me? Uh, you know, I'm allowed to go out there with this, this gun and a badge and authority in this police car and, and do the bidding of, of our constitution. So it, for me, it was, it was a real honor. Um, but like I said, it was a romanticized view. You know, you, when you sign up to be a police officer, the last thing you ever expect um, are those daily traumas. Um, you only expect the good things to happen, the helping people, meeting people, um, doing exciting things, um, having that camaraderie. Yeah. But I think as you are immature in the job, you don't really take into account those daily traumas that are going to be coming at you from all directions and the adrenaline jumps up and down and the the scenarios that you are expected to deal with by virtue of just being a police officer. And, you know, I think that the expectation of a police officer is once you get that gun in the badge, um, you are, you are now immune to things that most human beings aren't immune to. Um, and I think that in that expectation really starts a young officer on, um, some perilous journeys. And I think, you know, you're right in the academy. You're taught, don't be scared. Um, run towards the danger. Never was mental health um, even taught in the academy. Mm. It was never mentioned at all. Yeah. And, you know, especially as a young officer too, you know, your field training officers back then weren't always the smartest police officers. And I mean that like, 
that not that that were stupid, but in in within the police department as a, in the field training program, you usually got paired up with the guys that have been through the most shit, mm-hmm. and the biggest guys and the toughest guys, quote unquote. Um, and I think that even further kind of instills in a young officer that you have to have this rough exterior and you have to be tough and you have to compartmentalize and kind of push down some of these bad things that happen and put on this, put on this game face and be a badass all the time. Mm. And, you know, I, I think back to my very first night on the, in the, in my field training program. Uh, and to this day, I'm still good friends with, with my training officer. His name is Rob. Um, and we're hunting buddies now and we've, we've stayed in touch all these years, but Rob was the consummate third shift midnight guy and had the deep gruff voice and, you know, just, just the way he carried himself, people would kind of walk the other way because they were kind of nervous to be around him. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I want to, to impress him and I wanted to make sure that I exuded this confidence and he basically sat in the passenger seat, said, here's the keys, let's go. And within a half hour, I'm behind a, a Jeep that's all over the road. And he looks at me and says, guys all over the road, you going to stop him or what? And I said, yep. So I put on the blue lights and my very first stop was a motor vehicle chase. <laughs> and oh, wow. the, Jeep, the Jeep took off and, you know, trial by fire. And here I am chasing this guy and trying to call in streets on the radio. And I have no clue what street I'm on. And, you know, he's kind of getting a kick out of it, Rob in the passenger seat, because he's <laughs> yeah. done many times. So, you know, my heart is jumping out of my chest. He's sitting there cool as a cucumber. And he's just saying, you have no friggin' idea where you are, do you? And I said, no. He said, give me that microphone. And he took it out of my hand and he's calling out the streets. He goes, just chase the car. So that's wow. what I did. And the, my first stop, the Jeep ended up uh, crashing at a, a T in the road and jumping out with guns drawn and, and getting the guy in handcuffs. And so that wow. was my very first experience in field training. Um, and I just remember that adrenaline j- j- uh, jump and the excitement and, you know, the the very first night that I'm there, this experienced season officer writes on my review um, didn't feel like I was with a trainee, felt like I was with a partner. And when he, when he wrote that, um, like I was, I, I had a hook in me. That was it. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Wow. Thank you for sharing this. This is like whew, your first night on your field training and you're out on a chase, you know, and guns drawn and you probably had no idea that was ever going to happen or when right um when that was ever going to happen just amazing and that you're sharing that and I love that he wrote that in your review like you know I felt I I wasn't with a a trainee I was with a partner and that was that that set you up your confidence right to say yeah I'm doing this I want to go back on what you said um you know as you know, offers of what we see every day. We become immune to what we see. Can you can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I think there's an expect expectation that we're immune, and no, you know, by any stretch, we are not immune, and that's the problem. Um, the expectation is that we're supposed to deal with suicides, and we're supposed to deal with children being hurt and elderly being abused, and 
holding someone's hand in a car wreck, promising them that they're going to be okay. And then they die in front of you. Mm. And, you know, I think the expectation is that we are supposed to clock out at the end of our shift, go home, say hi to our family, go to bed, get up the next day and uh, do it all over again. Um, and do it to the best of our ability, which, you know, before there was any discussions of mental health and well-being, that meant that you went back to work and didn't think about what happened the night before, and you just concentrate on what you have in front of you the next day. And those those expectations are so embedded within police departments that it's really hard to separate yourself as a human being and, and the police officer. Yeah. Because you're constantly being reviewed on um, performance and uh, work output and how many arrests you're making, how many DWIs arrests you're making, um, how effectively you're going to court and prosecuting people. And during all that um, activity, there's no talk about, okay, well, what are you going to do to make sure you're okay? Because you you're doing all this constantly and repetitively and you're constantly being um, bombarded by all sides, by the chaos of, of society mm. and not really, you know, ever feeling that you can really take a deep breath and, and take it all in. Mm. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's the mentality that a lot of the young police officers uh, live with as a reality for their first five to 10 years where, it's you know 100 miles and 100 miles an hour hard charge it impress everybody put numbers on the board and uh, do it all the while that you look like you're doing it in a in a tough tough manner and that you can hack it yeah so becoming it's sort of like for you to be able to be successful um i mean that's sort of what i'm hearing in in a sort of way in order for you to be successful at becoming a police officer you're doing all these things, but you know to, you know, have to make arrests, have to do all of that, right? And and do it in a, in a in a good way, right? I have to do it um, correctly, um, and I'm being you know watched from that by that, but also I can't even think about. I don't even have time to think about, you know, how I'm feeling or am I feeling anything from yesterday. Where did you start, or did you start noticing that you were were feeling different because of all those calls and and shoving them down, right, or putting them in your backpack or compacting them, whatever word you want to use, right? It's the same one. You're putting it away um, and not thinking about it. Um, did that start to have an effect on you? I think it took. Um, <clears throat> probably a good 10 years mm-hmm. before I even like noticed even minutely that something was off and something was changing. And I think that, you know, people around you will see it much quicker than you see it for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I think you, I think as time goes by, you become a uh, little disenfranchised, you you definitely become uh, a cynic and hypervigilant. And, you know, you. I think 
you have a tougher time of shutting off the cop when you come home to your family. Mm. And, you know, you think that you can come home and, and tell people how it's going to be and lay down the law at home. Um, and that it's going to be your way or the highway. <clears throat> but I think it took about 10 years, but I think the turning point for me was a uh, shooting that I was involved in um, where I was shot and had to take the life of the person that was shooting at me. And I think, you know, that was, that was kind of a turning point where I, the change in me accelerated. So there had been change. Hindsight is 2020. Now looking back, the changes started day one. Um, but looking back now, I can see that it took about eight or 10 years. And then this, this really traumatic event, um, for it to kind of accelerate in my personality and, and me start to notice it. And probably even years after that to where I even cared to notice it or cared that it was actually affecting me or other people. Wow. So how many years after that first 10 years was that shooting that we will get in and talk about? Like after that 10 years that you said, mm, maybe, you know, I started to notice something in, in first 10 years in that it was notable. Um, that shooting, how, how many years after that shooting did the shooting happen? Um, so the shooting happened, I believe it was about eight years into my career. Okay. And probably Within 24 months after that event, my personality change definitely accelerated for the worst. Um, looking back, I can see that now, but when you're there in real time, you don't really notice that anything's going on. And certainly people around you may notice, but you don't yeah. really notice that there's changes going on. Yeah. Um, you know, being in the moment, um, enjoying, enjoying the small moments, um, with family and friends, um, isn't there as much as it used to be. The people that you hang out with, um, tend to be all first responders because you, you have a certain level of trust. You find that some relationships with people change for the worse and you don't see them anymore. You don't talk to them anymore because you don't feel you have anything in common with them and they won't understand where you're coming from. So some of my friends who were, you know, really close with, because they're not police officers, you don't give them any time like you used to. And it was that was kind of a gradual process. What do you what the what was what does that mean? Explain that I explain that for our listeners. Like your friends that were in first responders, um, they were the ones that sort of fell off um your radar, so to speak, right? Um, because um you, you weren't given up that, that time. What does explain that to us? So I think, you know, when you go to when a police officer goes to a party or a first responder goes to a party it's usually the first few minutes where someone's going to come up to you and realize who you are and what you do for work. And then, and then this, their personal story with law enforcement comes out and they feel that they have to tell you about when they got arrested or when they got stopped and how unfair it was and how much the police sucked. And, and, you know, you don't get that when you go to a party full of police officers or first responders, you don't yeah. have to deal with that. So, you know, you find yourself avoiding those places and okay. parties and get togethers where it's just regular citizens and just, you know, the regular population, because, um, you know, there's an unspoken word about with police officers about what you can and cannot discuss in, in a social setting. If you go into a social setting where there are no police officers, then you have to start 
feeling, well, I don't say you have to, but I, I would start feeling attacked by people Yeah, um, where they would come up to me and start telling me their shitty story about how they had a run in with a police officer. And, you know, I, I was going to a relative's get together every 4th of July. And there was a woman who was uh, always felt that she had to come up to me every single year that I went to this party and say, Hey, aren't you the one that got shot? Like she wouldn't even say, hi, how are you? Hey, good to see you again. The first words out of her mouth were always like, Hey, you're the one that got shot. Right. And I would get so pissed inside and, you know, and so mad that I would just want to leave, but I would just muddle through the party. And, you know, when you hang out with cops, you don't have to deal with that kind of scenario. Yeah. How did I, can I go back into that also, just have to follow up a little bit on that. Um, I just wrote down a question when I was just starting to listen to you and I was like, there's so much more in there um, that's going to come out. Um, when you, you know, when you said that, you know, you go into a party and they hear your police officer. Um, so I get it. I get it now that you're after explaining that. Why did you isolate away from, you know, um, civilian friends, right? Um, that there's parties at because, you know, you found out you're a police officer and then they, they start telling you all their woos and was, right? And and you're you're feeling attacked. How does that make you feel when those things happen? I, I'm in, very interested to sort of get that part of it. Um, I think that's where the cynicism and resentment comes in for people who are not in the same field of work that you're in. Mm. Um, you ex- <clears throat> Now that I'm more mature and experienced and older, you know, now I know to give people some more leverage and give them some some space to realize that, you know, they don't know the harm that they're doing with their words or what they're saying or doing to you. Um, and maybe, you know, would it be better if I would have explained to them, hey, listen, you know, can we just say hi and not talk about that? I'm here to enjoy myself. But yeah. instead, I would, I would get mad. But, um, you know, I think resenting people... Um, for no other reason than just not being a police officer or first responder and having to deal with the same stuff that I have to deal with. Yeah. And so you look at the average citizen as kind of like a us versus them type of mentality, Mm. both at work and in social settings. Mm. And the best way to deal with that is just don't be around them, you know, which is silly because you're there to serve them (laughs) and And you just don't want to be around them, yeah. you know, and it, you really go from wanting to protect and serve and helping to, I, I just don't want to deal with, with the common citizen anymore. Yeah. Was that hard for you? Sorry, Jay. Um, was that hard? Um, you know, when you're thinking about that, yeah, it's sort of ironic that, you know, here I am, um, you know, not wanting to be around people, but I'm in a, a job that I'm, I'm serving people um when I, when i'm thinking of that i was like that must have been really really hard um of being able to navigate different interactions with everyday people right either a traffic stop or how you would approach them did you feel that you were behaving differently um in those situations yeah i definitely uh, you know as time went on i definitely felt that i lost more patience with people and i was you know some people might say that I was rude in certain situations or might be cocky or uncaring or condescending. Uh, I'm sure that happened on some of my encounters with people out on the street. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, when, when it really kind of really got bad is when I went into undercover work 
And I know I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but um, very early in my career um, and not too long after the shooting, I went into undercover narcotics uh, for the New Hampshire Attorney General's office um, and was there for two years doing just street level narcotics. So the earrings, the long hair, the beard, um, the, the fake IDs, you know, being paid to go into bars yeah. and, and smoke cigarettes and drink Budweiser and play pool and hook up, you know, with people and, and try to buy drugs off of them. Um, you know, it, it, that was a very confusing time because, you know, in one instance, you're proud to be a police officer. You want everybody to know it and what a good job you do. And then all of a sudden I'm thrown into this scenario post big, huge traumatic event where now my job is to blend in with um, the public um, and not even the general public, that segment of the public that yeah. deals drugs. Yeah. Um, so your identity, you know, my identity was all over the place. Wow. So I went from, you know, proud to be a police officer. I want everyone to know to, I don't want anyone to know I'm a police officer. And matter of fact, now it's a safety concern and my life could be in danger if anyone found out that I'm a police officer. So, you know, it really did a lot for my self-identity. Wow. And, you know, when people tell you, and I did undercover narcotics work all the way up to the end of my career. So 10 or 11 years, um, I went from the attorney general's office to the DEA um, high intensity drug trafficking area task force in the, in the Manchester area. Um, so then I became a federal task force officer and doing higher level narcotics investigations. So for over half of my career, um, I was plain clothes and I was surrounded. I had to surround myself with that criminal element that, that deals drugs and that's in that underworld. And very quickly, um, you start to act, not just look, but you start to act like these. And, be and behave like the people that you're trying to put in jail. And that is a survival tactic, because if you don't do that, they're going to find you out. Yeah. yeah. So you're doing everything in your power to be that asshole 24-7, even at home. You know, you can't when you're when you're out in the public with your family, you can't you can't hang that persona up on a shelf because you don't know who you're going to see out in the general public. Wow. Um, so it was. Yeah. That, so that was a that was a tough thing for me. And, wow. you know, looking back to this day, I always say, you know, how can you go through an 11, 12 year career? and undercover narcotics and no one ever pulls you aside who's in a position of authority and says, Hey, are you doing okay? Mm. Or are you tracking? Okay. Or, Hey, I'm noticing these differences in you. You know, we need to, we need to take a time out and, and regroup and get you regrounded because, you know, you really start doing risky things and stupid things and alcohol fueled things. And, um, you know, the more that you can blend in, the more you're emulated by your fellow drug agents. Yeah. You know, wow. so if, you're, if you're able to go in and convince other people that you're not a cop and, and buy drugs and put people in jail because of it, you know, you're actually rewarded for being able to be that asshole all the time. Yeah. And getting paid for it. Yeah. Well, man, that had to be, uh, I, I'm just trying to process 
the picture that I got when you said, like, you know, I'm I'm becoming this. I had to become really, really good at acting out this this bad guy, right? Um, and as you said, like this, you know, uh, I don't know what word you use, but this bad guy. Um, and then I couldn't switch off when I went home. I I still had to. I still. Uh, you couldn't switch. It was like, you can't, oh, I'm taking off my acting clothes now today and, you know, I'm going to put them back on again tomorrow. You you were acting that out. What the heck? Mm-hmm. How was that? Like, your, with your family? Like, you know, it, it was not, it was not good for my family at all. I remember one scenario in particular um, where I had gone straight from work to meet my wife to watch my kids at Taekwondo. And my, as I walk in, my wife is sitting against the wall with some of the other wives and I walk in and I look like a shithead. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that when I walk in the room, everyone turns around and is like, who the hell is this guy? You know? Mm, yeah. And so I went to go join my wife to watch my children do Taekwondo. And, um, my wife was laughing with the woman that she was with. I automatically assume that they were making fun of the way that I looked and I got so angry in that moment that I couldn't control my anger to the point where I just could have a conversation with my wife and say, Hey, you know, if you're making fun of me, don't, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm here to watch my son. Uh, instead I just got pissed and swore at my wife and walked out and went home. And she's like trying to follow me out. Like, Hey, Hey, where are you going? Get back here. You know, don't be silly. And, and I'm like, you know, F this, I'm out of here and just left. Yeah. You know? So it was moments like that where I, because of my job and because of everything that I was going through, I couldn't sit there and enjoy a moment for my son and be mindful and be present and be in the moment. Yeah. Um, and that's a moment in my life that I'll never get back. Yeah, yeah it, it's an hour long, but it's that's that's a those little moments can be the most meaningful moments in, in your life, especially as a police officer where you're apt you're able to unplug and, and be a dad. And I couldn't do that. Instead, yeah. I, I left angry, and the only person that suffered in that case was my son because his dad walked out. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, you want to chime in? Yeah, it's it's so interesting listening to you sort of describe like the evolution of of your perspective from the the early time on the job and and the pride of being selected and having the opportunity to work as a police officer. And then you go on to describe, uh, you know, a a critical incident uh, where gunfire was exchanged. You were you were wounded in that. Um, And and I thought it was a really uh, I don't know if I'd say good example, but a clear example for our audience of. Um, this woman coming up to you and, and dehumanizing you in a way, right? Like just that was, that was, she bypassed the human condition altogether and just asked you about that. Like that's an okay way to approach somebody. And I think that oftentimes first responders in general and and probably police officers in particular, we miss those moments in real time and it contributes to how we see ourselves and, and we begin to dehumanize ourselves. And, and it sounds like in this moment, you're so aware, not only of those changes as they took place, um, as you, as your career progressed, 
but also of like sort of the societal and cultural elements that, w- that were contributing to that in your experiences. So uh, what I'm wondering is how aware were you a- at the time? Did you feel justified in, uh, you know, as your, as your perspective began to change and you were becoming more angry or did you feel like it was something that was only happening to you, right? Like, was it, how did that, what was that experience like and what was the level of awareness? You know, I think um, looking back, I had zero self-awareness of what I was doing. Wow. Um, you know, when when you're given an expense account to actually go out and and drink in bars, because, you know, we, we, we can get to this, but drinking became an issue for me, for sure. Um, and, you know, it was it would be nothing to go into a bar undercover and either you're covering somebody a fellow officer undercover doing a deal and to blend in, you have to sit there and drink beers. If you, if you didn't have a cigarette and a beer in your hand back then, you stood out like a sore thumb, especially the places we were in. Mm-hmm. Um, but being told by superiors in the business that here's your fake credit card, here's some cash, here's your fake ID um, to go in there and drinking is okay while you're on duty as a police officer. Um, you know, that becomes your identity. Like you think you're above above the law to a certain extent. And, you know, we would work till 12, one o'clock at night while we were working in bars. And if things were successful, meaning we were able to buy some drugs, or even if we didn't buy drugs, we would all meet up uh, over behind the Fisher Cat Stadium in Manchester. We used to call it the planes, trains, and automobiles because the planes would come overhead at night. There's train tracks that would go across, and there was a Firestone that worked on automobiles, so we called it planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> and, we would, and we would go and and split a thirty pack and sit on the hoods of our undercover cars until two, two, three in the morning before we went home. Mm-hmm. And driving to our respective houses in government-owned vehicles, you know, where in a lot of cases, you know, had a lot to drink. Yeah, um, and you know, you really start feeling like you're above the law to a certain extent and that you can kind of do what you want and you don't really care, you know, who's being hurt in the process. Thank God nobody ever got hurt. Nobody ever got in an accident. Nobody ever got arrested for DWI, but certainly, um, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to be be pulled over by a police officer who was professionally doing his job Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, because it probably would have hurt my career. Certainly would have embarrassed the agencies that I worked for and represented. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just, you know, instead of having the opportunity of get maybe getting out early from work and going home to your family uh, or spending a few minutes with your loved one before you go to bed, you know, here we are spending another two hours drinking beer before we go home. Mm-hmm. And our, you know, our family's been in bed for hours at that point and you just crawl into bed, get yeah. up in the morning and do it again. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, you know, this definitely had a, a huge effect on, you know, your family, right? And um, how how are you able to get through that 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 phase in your career? Um, I wasn't getting through it. That's you know that's that's where the problem arises is because you're not getting through it. You're just you're just surviving and you're engaging in risky behaviors and you think you're infallible and invincible and you know so i 
when I was with the DEA, I joined the clandestine lab team and I went down to Quantico and received some specialized training in um, how to investigate meth labs and how to properly, you know, take them down and dismantle them. And, and then I became, I went down again and became a site safety officer where I received even more training. Um, and every time that we did a raid, they would say, who wants to be on the ram? And, you know, I would say, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll be the first one through the door. And there was one, there was one meth lab in particular where it was in Franklin, New Hampshire. We went up these tall stairs and I had the ram smash the door. And then we all start going in. And this guy's standing there with a laundry basket full of his methamphetamine um, ingredients. And he looks at us coming through the door and just throws him to the left towards a bedroom and a huge fireball just engulfs the whole apartment. Wow. We grab him, bring him down the stairs. And by the time we get to the bottom of the stairs, this triple decker is fully engulfed in flames and we're laughing about it. We're taking photos outside and laughing and, you know, kind of pointing to the house behind us burning and, you know, taking these funny photographs um, and never really processing the fact that, he could have thrown that towards us and torched all of us in that hallway. Yeah. Like that wasn't even, that wasn't even a thought. The thought was, well, look how funny this is. And the, the building's burning. Mm. Um, but that, that emotion gets tucked away somewhere. Yeah. It's got to go somewhere. Yeah. It, you know, we're not dealing it with it that day. Yeah. Did you feel that you were sort of um, making risky decisions or, you know, you're nodding for our listeners. He's nodding right away the minute I said yes, that. Did yeah. you feel so, you were you know, risky I, behavior? You know, it, it sounds funny, but, you know, I stopped wearing a seatbelt. Uh, I always volunteered to be the first one through the door. Um, I always wanted to do the high-risk undercovers. You know, I had no problem going into dark alleys um, and dealing with people that just assume shoot you or stab you for an $80 Oxycontin pill. Um, and... Thank God nothing ever happened. Um, mm. But I was just constantly putting myself in these positions where something bad could happen. And, you know, really it, it got to the point where I just didn't give, you know, give a, you know, I, I swear, I'm sorry. Yes, I, you they, listen, you you it won't be the first one on this podcast, let me tell you. you. You get to a point where you just don't give a fuck, yeah. you know, and the less you give a fuck, the more um, perilous situations you put yourself in mm. and it's almost like you're inviting something bad to happen so maybe that you can stop having to do what you're doing day to day yeah yeah um, oh my god yes you know, but so there were there were always those times i was i was involved in another shooting and i fell into a during a raid in a basement i fell into a a, a dug pit um, that somebody had booby trapped the basement. Thank God they didn't put punji sticks or spears in the in the ground. But I fell and, and hurt myself. Wow. Um, but we laughed about it. Like we didn't we didn't look at it as like holy shit we could have been killed. We laughed about it and thought it was funny. And hey, let's go let's go do the next one and yeah. joke about it. Yeah, it sounds like like you were like so far in as far as where your perspective of keeping yourself safe, right? Um, that was, that was gone. That was gone out the window. Um, whew, it's a lot. I had to be a lot on your family too. And, um, 
it's like you became a whole different person um, from the time that you became that young police officer, right? Um, and the adrenaline and what you felt from that first time of that chasing that jeep to now this person is taking all sorts of risks, putting himself in danger, um, you know, of either being hurt or killed, um, volunteering, I'll, I'll, I'll go in, I'll be the first one in. I, I heard, um, you know, something very similar from a previous interviewer, from a, a SWAT um, guy. And, um, you know, he was just, he said, I, I just did not care anymore. I just did not care. And I wasn't going to, um, you know, think about killing myself. But I was putting myself in a position that someone else was going to do it for me. And right. um, and that sort of sounds, even though you're not saying that, I mean, he said it, you know, uh, you're not saying that. That's what that sort of feels like to me. It feels very similar. Um, you know, how far in you are gone with just totally not caring mm. Um you know what was going to happen you know there was no let's think about this for a minute what could happen me if I go in this door you know that type of way um no sort of perspective in that end um wow there's a lot can I get into the the a shooting that you were involved in um sure. that you said that that's really where your life um you know, accelerated or your mental health accelerated where you really, really started to notice this is some, there's something major going on here. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I was in my eighth year of police work, um, still loving it, um, still doing what I thought was a really good job. Um, And really up to that point, you know, people had respected my authority, have done what I had asked them to do and ordered them to do. And a lot, although I'd been in some physical altercations, nothing really major had happened to me. Um, so there was a the level of complacency that kind of comes over you when you're at that five to 10 year mark, if nothing bad has happened to you. Um, and if you don't realize it, I mean, that's definitely something that can kill you. But so I became really comfortable on the day shift, uh, which was seven to three. And I was driving through this parking lot that I did every day at the same time, uh, right before I would go get a newspaper and then tuck myself away somewhere after stopping a few cars, um, just to say that I did something and read the paper and then listen to my favorite radio show and then stop a couple more cars and then go home. And so I had actually hurt my back um, at the gym. And I remember telling my my wife, like, I'm not even going to get out of the car today. You know, I don't want to call in sick, but my back hurts. I'm, I'll just stay in the car. Um, you know, I mean, how silly does that sound? Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't yeah. go to work and stay in the car all day if you're a cop. Yeah. So I'm cruising through this parking lot. It's a crowded parking lot. There's a um, supermarket, several restaurants. Um, there was a cellular telephone business. Uh, Panera Bread was probably the most active restaurant there at that time in the morning. It was about... 9.50 in the morning. I pulled into the parking lot and I noticed this older white uh, Pontiac Bonneville. And there was a young man and a young woman inside the car. And they looked like they were kind of like rummaging through the console. And I noticed a bullet hole in the windshield. And, you know, as first responders, we know the difference between a rock hitting a, a windshield or 
some other object hitting the windshield versus a bullet hole. They're pretty distinct. And there was a bullet hole in the windshield right in front of the driver's seat. So, you know, being complacent and feeling invincible, you know, I probably should have said, hey, I've got a car with a bullet hole in the windshield. Why don't you send someone out my way? I didn't. I just circled around them and got in a position where I could see their license plate and started to run the license plate on the radio. And the the dispatcher came back and said that it was going to be a minute because the terminal was down, which was pretty common back then. The technology was evolving and um the, the the they call it the spots computer, which is the motor vehicle records for the state of New Hampshire was down. So as I pulled in behind the vehicle, um, that vehicle was facing the Panera Bread with a bunch of glass windows and people eating breakfast. I'm behind the car now. Then I see a purse on the ground, um, and the driver's door is open. And so now I'm thinking to myself, well, they just stole a purse. Still not saying on the radio, hey, I might have a couple of burglars or thieves here, send someone my way. You know, I can handle this on my own. I'm a tough guy. It's been eight years. Nothing bad has happened to me. They they look back and they notice that I'm there and I'm sitting in my car and had, still hadn't gotten out. They immediately kind of gave that, oh, shit, look, and both got out of the car and started walking kind of towards the right away from their vehicle. So I rolled the passenger window down and told them, hey, come over here, I want to talk to you. And they kind of ignored me. So I said it loud, I said, hey, I want to talk to you, come back over here. And they kind of glanced over at me, still didn't come back. So then, you know, thank God, I got my ass out of the cruiser, stood up by the driver's door and yelled over, um, hey, get over here, I want to talk to you. And now it was obvious that they couldn't ignore me anymore. They had to come back over. So they they walked back over. They get to the front of my cruiser and they, the male party is acting very suspicious. He's kind of looking around. Um, we call it looking for the escape route. When you're talking to somebody, they're looking to see if you have backup coming or where they might run to. And I saw him doing this, but I still didn't really react, put two and two together. So I'm a little heightened at this point, but not, you know, to the point where I should be. So I start asking him some really quick questions. What are you doing here? You know, why are you in the parking lot? And as I'm doing that, the radio dispatch comes back and starts giving me the listing on the plate. And I hadn't even called dispatch to tell them I was off these people yet. So they start reading the plate to me and they say over the radio that the driver, the owner of the vehicle has a drug history and they said it in 10 codes. And I said, okay, I'm going to be off with that subject and called off my location. So then as I'm talking to him, he takes the, the woman takes like two steps away from him. Like she's distancing herself from him and he keeps putting his hands in his pocket. I keep telling him to take him out. And he did it like three times. Finally, I said, Hey, listen, take your hands out of your pocket, put your hands on the hood of my car. I want to pat you down for your safety and mine. And he immediately responds, what the fuck did I do? I didn't do anything. And he starts getting all ramped up and having this argument with me. And I said, well, you haven't done anything, but I want to pat you down, put your hands on the hood of my car. And now he's like blading himself towards me and kind of rocking back and forth. And, and so I'm anticipating that we're going to get into a fight. Mm-hmm. So I'm a right-hand shooter. So I got my gun on my right hand. I have an expandable baton on my left side. So I reached over with my strong hand, grabbed the baton, and I was just about to extend it um, because I thought we were going to get into a physical altercation. 
And before I could even extend it, he takes a step towards me. And as fast as I can, you know, count to one, he produces a handgun and puts it in my face. Holy shit. Sorry. And probably a foot from my face with the handgun. Oh, wow. And now the girl is circling behind me and screaming. And he's telling me, get on the ground, motherfucker, lay down, lay down, lay down, lay down, get on the fucking ground. And then, so, you know, at first I'm totally shocked that this, that I actually let someone get the drop on me. And then I'm pissed because someone's pointing a gun at me, but I'm also scared shitless that he's going to kill me. Mm. So I take the baton and I put it up in front of my face, trying to protect my face because he's got the gun pointed right at my head and his fingers in the trigger guard. And I'm telling him to calm down, calm down. I'm like, I don't know what you did. I'm like, dude, it's not worth it, but I'm not laying down on the ground because I remember back in the academy, one of my instructors, I don't know who it was, but somebody told me if you lay on the ground, they'll execute you. They won't do it to you face to face. But if you lay down, your odds of getting shot in the back of the head increase. So I said, dude, I'm not laying down. I'm sorry, I'm not laying down. And so I take the baton. I notice that he's staring at it. And I put it in my left hand. And I still have it up in my front of my face. But I notice that he's staring at the baton and not me. So I'm kind of moving the baton to the left, hoping that I'll divert his attention away from my face. And as I'm doing that, I'm slowly taking my right hand and putting it on my gun. And we had a what we call a triple retention holster, which is two snaps, and then you have to rock it backwards to get your gun out. So I unsnapped the holster. And to me, it was the loudest noise in the world. I thought he heard it, knew what it was, and would shoot me right then. I'm like, I'm dead. I heard this big snap go off. He knows I'm going to pull my gun, and he's going to shoot. And he didn't. So... I'm like, thank God. So all I could think to do was I handed him the baton and I said, here, just take it, just take it and go. And he kind of looked at me with a confused look and didn't know really what to do. Thankfully he grabbed it and turned around and started running back to his car. At which point I kind of followed him around the front of my cruiser to the driver's side. And now I'm screaming for him to him to get on the ground and to drop the gun. And to this day, I never heard his gun. I can't honestly say I heard his gun go off. Um, All I remember is the gun coming up over the roof of his car pointed at me. Um, And remember thinking in a split second that, you know, when I start shooting, I have to hit him because if I miss, I'm going to hit somebody having breakfast at Panera Bread through all these glass windows. So I just remember getting tunnel vision and seeing, thinking to myself, I have to shoot him through the back window of the car. Wow. Um, And I just remember little holes going pop, pop, pop in the glass um, in almost like slow motion. And I didn't even hear my gun going off. And I just remember seeing the little holes from the bullets of my gun, creating these holes in the back window of the car. So as I'm backpedaling, trying to get behind my car, at the time I thought I tripped um, and I fell backwards and as I'm falling in slow motion, I can see that I've shot to lock back. My, my, the slide of my gun is locked back, so I've shot all 12 rounds. And the time it took me to fall down on the ground and get back up 
you know, they say your training kicks in. I had already taken another magazine, put it in the pistol and actually racked an extra round just to make sure that it was loaded again. Mm. And then came back up and continued to scream for him to um, get on the ground and drop the gun. So prior, just a fraction of a second before I fell, I saw him kind of twitch forward and I could have sworn I heard him say, oh, fuck. And so when I get back up, he's sitting in the seat. I can see his head, um, but it looks like he's staring forward and kind of moving in a way that didn't look natural to me, Mm. which later, you know, it's kind of, he's like heaving for air. Yeah. So at this point, my backup is coming into the parking lot because they heard that during that initial transmission on the radio, this guy was known to use drug. So my partner, well, not my partner, but another guy that was on patrol who was about a mile down the road started driving that way. And when he came into the parking lot, he started hearing the gunshots. So in the radio excerpt, you can hear him saying shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. And that's all he could, that's all he could muster. He couldn't say anything else. He just kept saying it over and over and over again on the radio. So finally, all the troops come, and uh, I'm able to um, get back up on my feet and kind of figure out, you know, what just happened. And I remember looking down at my leg because I felt my hip and felt like a pain. There was a little hole in my pants, and I saw a little bit of uh, blood staining, and I'm like, oh, shit, he shot me. Mm. And then the pain came, and then I was kind of like limping around. Um but I still wanted to stay in the fight. Your natural reaction when you're on that adrenaline is to stay in the fight. So I'm kind of going up to the car and I can kind of see that his gun is in his lap in his hand. And I could tell by the way he was moving that, you know, I had hit him pretty good. So at this point, all these cops are showing up from all over that heard it on the radio. Um, And I remember one of my sergeants coming up behind me um, and grabbing me. At that point, I had already call, called out, I need an ambulance. I said, I've I've been shot, but I was actually calling the ambulance for him because I didn't feel any pain again. Mm. And I remember, slow down your breathing so you can control the bleeding or whatnot. But I remember I wasn't dizzy. I didn't feel like anything was wrong with me. Um, so I kind of wanted to stay in the fight. And so my sergeant kind of pulled me down to the ground and got me laying down on the ground. I remember not wanting to be on the ground at all. And... Um, hearing the sirens and then they start stripping my shirt off and checking my vest and and I said it's just my it's just my hip. So come to find out, he had gotten off three shots. He actually shot first. Um, I got off twelve rounds. Um, one of them superficially hit him in the leg, and one of my shots hit him uh, in the head. And so then the next thing I know is I'm being transported in an ambulance. And, you know, we talk about that first responder humor, uh, the EMTs and the firemen, I've known them, you know, up, up to that point for eight years. And yeah. I was one of those guys that made it a point of going in there every morning and having coffee with the firemen because uh, I thought they were funny. And I always knew that if any of my stuff at home broke, they could fix it. So I always, <laughs> went, I always went in there to socialize with those guys. So I remember as they're transporting me in the, in the ambulance, one of the, one of the guys who actually still works at Bedford, um, puts his, puts his, uh, puts his balls right in my face and says, Hey, I bet you never thought you'd get teabagged by uh, an EMT. 
And you know, it's just that that first responder humor. And you know, he what he's trying to do is he's trying to lighten that very serious yes. situation that I was just in. Yeah. And and so I get to the hospital, and back then they didn't have separate rooms to triage people. It was like kind of one big area with just little um, curtains. And they actually wheeled him in with me um, next to me and I could hear them working on him and suctioning and I could hear, you know, the gurgling and, and as they're checking me over, you know, I basically can hear this guy dying next to me. And um, so I just remember all these cops that I work with and some that I didn't work with from the state police and Manchester police kind of just standing there and just kind of looking at me kind of bewildered, not knowing really what to say to me. And I'm just sitting there in this gurney, not knowing what to say to anybody else. And one of my sergeants comes in. um, And my first thing that I said to him was, please tell me I didn't shoot anybody in the background. And he just had this like scared look on his face. And I said, he said, no, you didn't. I said, please tell me the truth. I go, did I kill anybody in the background? He's like, no, you didn't. I swear to God, you didn't. And I said, okay. And by that time, um, both my brothers are in law enforcement or were in law enforcement. Um, and ironically, my younger brother at the time was undercover. So he was trying to get into the emergency room and they wouldn't let him in because they thought he was friends with the shooter. Oh my looked, goodness. Yeah. Cause he looked undercover. Yeah. yeah. So, and my other brother was a federal agent. Of course they let him right in cause he had a shirt and tie on, but, um, you know, so then my brothers came into the ER and, and, you know, they want to check me out to make sure I had no more extra holes in me than the one I had. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the, the jumping off point where, you know, being out from that for what I thought was only going to be a couple of days to being a couple of weeks, um, where I really started noticing that acceleration of changes in myself. Mm-hmm. So how did you get through that? And like, first of all, I am, I'm exhaling because I'm absorbing a lot of, lot of information that you're giving me. Um, how did you find yourself getting through that, being able to process what just happened. Um, if so, from, you from know, that. I think the, one of the first things that, that happens when a police officer gets hurt in the line of duty, and especially when they survive and they're okay and they're not hurt, is that it immediately turns into this impromptu party at your house. So all these guys are showing up. Um, they're bringing food with them. They're bringing beer. And it's almost like a, almost like a party atmosphere that they're, it's very strange. So here I am trying to process traumatic event and everybody around me is like having almost like this party mood and kind of hanging out in my house. Like it was a social get together. Well, they were glad that you, you were alive, right? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I totally get that now, yep. but it's, it's, it's tough too. Yep. And you're the one you're kind of like the center of attention. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to be left alone, kind of. Um, and I remember two police officers um, ended up showing up. I didn't know they were going to be coming. I didn't know who they were. It was an older guy uh, from the Seabrook Police Department, and I don't even remember who the second guy is. But um, I still remember the, who the first guy was, um, and he's got his doctorates now. He works down in Massachusetts, but his last name is Frost, and they call him Frosty. So that was my first 
contact with what I would consider any sort of peer or schism. And back then, they were in the infantile stages of, of schism in the state of New Hampshire. But somebody, somebody along the way had called him and his partner to come talk to me. And the reason for that was because they were on some sort of schism or peer team um, or had been in some sort of incident comparable to that one. And they came to my house, and in the middle of this socializing, these two strangers in uniform said, hey, can we go upstairs into your bedroom with you? And... Um, remember just thinking to myself how awkward that sounded and felt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, sure. And so they take me up to my bedroom where it's quiet and said, you know, this is who we are. We're just here to um, let you know that there might be some certain reactions that you're going to have to this. Um, some of them might be sooner than later, but some of the things that you need to look out for, um, here's some suggestions, you know, uh, if you can, um, don't drink alcohol. Of course, I'm sitting there with a beer in my hand as he's talking to me. Mm-hmm. And you might experience things like anxiety and inability to sleep and anger and sadness. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, you've got no fucking idea what I'm thinking right now. You know, I'm not going to be thinking any of those things. I'm just glad I'm alive, you know, <laughs> and just kind of having that cocky attitude and, you know, I don't, I don't remember how long he was there. I just remember those were kind of like the basic things that he said to me. Looking back now, I know he was trying to do a stress debrief with me. Mm. Uh, of course, I didn't know what it was back then. Um, and it was just kind of a, a quick, a quick meeting and they were gone. And looking back now, I can tell you that every single thing that he said was going to happen, happened. <laughs> and he knew exactly what he was talking about. Wow. Um, because I experienced all those things. And um, and that's why I do what I do now in the SISM and peer world, because I know that those brief encounters might not seem like a big deal, uh, but it's the start of a helping of you getting through this journey that you're going to have to get through after a seriously traumatic event. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, I um, we're going to get into that because it, it'll lead us into sort of what you do now and, um, and why you do it. But I just want to ask one, I wrote down like Jordan all of this time, did anyone from your department and, um, you know, say, are you okay? So I want to say the attention quickly turns to the investigation, the use of force investigation. So up to that point, no, nobody has said, are you okay? Um, they've said, I'm glad you're okay. Uh, but no one has said, hey, are you? how are you doing with all this? And so the next conversations are about, hey, you should get an attorney. Uh, do you have an attorney? Um, the attorney general's office is going to be investigating this. And so now it goes, the mood quickly goes from this socializing party atmosphere to, oh, shit the realization that I just killed somebody and now I have to justify that. Um, so shit got real, really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so my anxiety level was through the roof and now I'm scrambling to find an attorney that I can speak to about what's going on. Mm. So I was referred to a really good attorney who up to that point had done a lot of, um, pro bono work for police officers. And he was actually a really good attorney and, and specialized in actually police shootings. So I called him on the phone 
walked through him, walked walked him through everything that had happened in that scenario. And he basically said, this is a justifiable shooting. You're going to be fine. I'll meet you at your PD tomorrow. The attorney general's office and major, major crime state police are going to want to get a statement from you. Um, I'll meet you there a half hour early and we'll get through this. So now, now I'm in a, a defense Now I'm in defense mode. Um, where now I have to, you know, make sure that I'm covering the bases and that I'm protecting myself legally and that I'm saying and doing the right things and having the right reactions. And so then I have my meeting with the major crime and the attorney general's office. And my attorney basically said, just start telling the story the way you told me. And if I need you to stop, I'll tap your leg under the table and you stop talking and do not talk again until I tell you to. So two troopers come in and I, I understand that they were just doing their job, but they came in and they were very stern looking. Um, you know, not once did they say, Hey, it's nice to meet you. We're just here to do this investigation. I'm sure things will be fine. They just came in and they were very stern um, and made me want to go into defense mode even more. Mm, not and, if you were... and they never said, you know, and you're expecting a, a fellow police officer to say, Hey, I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. And, they never said that either. So I'm like, oh shit, like, you know, are these the bad guys? Mm. Um, but anyway, I got through that investigation um, and it was cleared um, the next day after that by the attorney general's office. And the attorney never had to tap me under the table and tell me to stop talking because it was a pretty clear cut. Yeah. Well, in that, in that moment, it started to sound like as if you were feeling as if you were the bad guy. Right. Um, right just by the way you were being treated in that time, right? Um, so how how did that then go? Where did, where did that leave you as far as you, you know, seeking help for yourself? Or did you, when, if, if any? You know, so back then, um, and things have changed now, basically it's, okay, when do you want to come back to work? And before you come back to work, you have to go see um, – this psychiatrist in Concord and you have to meet with him and he has to sign off on you being able to come back to duty. And thank God those attitudes have changed now, but basically it was a contracted psychiatrist that I went to go see. Um, he will remain unnamed because I think he was a terrible psychiatrist. Um, and he just contracted with police departments to basically clear people to get back to work because, you know, no psychiatrist is going to be contracted to take people out of work. Mm. Um, so I went to his office, sat in his office. He asked me if I was drinking, having nightmares, depressed, anxiety. I said, no, no, no. He said, thank you very much and signed off. I uh, came out in the hallway and told my chief I was all set. Wow. And of course I lied about everything he asked me. Um, why? Yeah, of course I had nightmares. Of course I had anxiety. Of course I had a little depression and anger. Um, but I wasn't going to tell him because I didn't right. want to look weak. Um, I didn't want to um, be stigmatized by other people because up to that point, you know, I had developed a pretty good reputation for being a pretty good aggressive cop that knew his shit. And I didn't want to come out there and be taken offline or be looked at as being weak or less, less than yeah. I was before the shooting. Yeah. Right. So I lied to him. It sounds like the process, the way that it was set up at that time, um, it, it wasn't really set up in a way that, that, was likely to to 
address the actual trauma, the underlying issues, right? It was serving a different purpose. With the work that you do um, now, can we get into that? How have you seen a progression in the way that we approach mental health and wellness and first response? Where have we improved? And um, just kind of take that wherever you want with, with the work that you do now. So I think we have come leaps and bounds, but I still think we have a lot of work to do. Um, But we are very much, um, we're very good at, you know, kind of what we do now compared to where we were. So, you know, don't get me wrong. My police department did what they thought was right at the time. And my police chief was a great guy and supported me in the best way that he knew how. But the police department just wasn't educated on what to do. So what I have seen now is that we have we have peer officers that work in the police department where in some departments their full-time job is to keep a pulse on the guys and the girls, mm-hmm. even even the non-sworn staff to make sure everybody's tracking okay, especially after a traumatic incident. Um, we have Love critical that. incident stress debrief teams that will go and – bring a clinician with them and have a full circle of everybody that was involved in the event. Every, and there's a certain uh, way, a protocol that's, that it's done by best practices um, to help them work through that traumatic event and then offer resources and some education at the end of that debrief. Um, and then even stay after the debrief with peers and a clinician to talk with people offline after the debrief and get them some resources that they think um, that the members might think they might need. And then we're also set up to um, do follow-up later on. So if we do a debrief at a certain police department, and let's say we identify someone that really is exhibiting some signs that they're going to need some more help and depth help, mm-hmm. then you know we, we can work with their peer officer and say, hey, listen, you know, due to the confidentiality in the room, I can't tell you who, but just, you know, you might want to keep an eye out for your officers and offer that those, you know, different resources to them because uh, confidentiality is really the crux of what we do. And the, the lack of trust that we as first responders have, not only for the general public, but for each other in those scenarios is yeah. really high. Yeah. And the stigma still exists that if you, tell someone you're not doing okay, that you're weak and you're not strong and you're not a good cop or you're not a good fireman or EMT or whatnot. So we, we really stress confidentiality in those cases and the peer to peer work. Um, and I also bleed that into my men's group that I run. Um, and that's a casual drop-in group for anyone who's worn a uniform in the first responder community. And, as a caveat, when people come in, if there's new people that come into the group, I, I lay down some ground rules. And one of the ground rules is uh, if you betray the trust of the group, if you talk about anything that's said or done in this group, you'll be asked not to come back again. Um, and it's, you know, it's the confidentiality that allows us to be vulnerable in this group and really process and work through some things that we need to work through in a safe place. Mm, very so important. peer-to-peer stuff, SISM, comfort dogs, bringing comfort dogs to the scene, um, new technology like EMDR or ganglion blocker or um, trauma-based therapies, intensive outpatient programs. Um, you know, And I think police departments too have become better at when they're seeing somebody that's having troubles at work, not necessarily treating it as a, um, 
like they have to punish them or reprimand them. Um, look for the root cause of what's causing them to act the way they are at work. And maybe not if they're not doing a good job or, you know, they're being short with people or they're getting complaints from the general public. Instead of punishing them for the act, look for the root cause of what's causing them to act that way. Um, and I think the reason for that is one, they want to save good people. Mm-hmm. Um, really good cops are hard to come by. Uh, you retain people better if you keep them healthy, both physically and mentally. Yeah. And recruiting, you can't get anyone who wants to be a cop anymore. So you have to save the heroes that, that are working on the job now. You can't just put them out the pasture because you think that they have a mental health problem. You have to normalize them getting help for it and getting better because the, you yeah. can rehab your mind like you can rehab a you know a bad knee, right? Um, but not doing anything, you know, um, isn't the answer because it just gets worse and you create more liability for the police department. So. I think when you, especially with municipalities, when you put it into dollars and cents and how you're saving, saving money and saving careers and saving really good people and not having to hire someone to replace that person, you know, it makes a lot more sense to police chiefs and town councils. Yeah. To have a more knowledgeable, um, you know, first responder, right. Um, who's go- who's also going to be able to help others or, or notice um, if there's something going on with a peer um, who long they work with. So having said that, I mean that yeah, there is so much improvement um, that's after evolving over the years, and and it is getting better. And there are departments recognizing um, that they're they you know they are putting out the men and women out there right and they need to be uh, supportive of that they you're working in a, a trauma job right um so let's bring in those resources and tools to be able to support uh, a first responder when they're going through some struggles or having a hard time um recovering from a job or, or a scene um that we have but having said that there is still a huge um huge numbers and first response suicide. So there is still a huge issue um, for first responders to um, not opening up, right, and and seeking help. Um, so that's where we're at. First, you know, hope beyond the badge is hoping that normalizing it, you said it earlier on, you know, developing trust, um, and trust is a huge thing. I wrote it down even before you were starting saying it. I was writing down trust and you, and you came out and, and said it. And I was like, yeah, um, it, it is. It's so important to have a person, right, a safe person mm. um, to open up to. And it, it might not be a clinician. We, 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 we interviewed, like, so many different force responders. And it, it might not be, you know, the first time that you go to see someone professionally, um, you know, like a, a therapist, um, you might not hit it off, right? But it's important that you have someone that you're going to connect with, regardless of who they are. And it's someone that you might just feel safe with to unload and, and to talk about. And not and importantly, not to feel judged, like no right. judgment. Um, it just a all has to be left aside. Um, and, and importantly, that that person who's, who's, you know, sharing their deepest things that they have held inside for a long time um, to feel safe, like really, really feel safe. So I love that you are doing this, 
you know, men's group um, in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. So every, every Wednesday at six o'clock um, mm. at our office, um, I facilitate this group and it's not, it's not uh, clinically led. It's just me as a facilitator. And, yeah. and I always tell the guys that show up, the only difference between you and I is I have a key to the office. Um, other than that, you know, I, I engage with the group just as much as I expect them to engage with others. And, you know, just, just last week we had, and, you know, staying in the confidentiality of that group, I don't like to give out too much information, but there was a scenario where one person came out with something very traumatic that happened to them that was just, you know, terrible to even listen to. Um, the guy next to him says the same exact thing happened to me, and this is the first time I'm saying it out loud after all these years, 30 years in law enforcement, and as a family, as a husband and a, and a father and a friend, this is the first time I'm saying, uttering these words from my mouth that this even happened to me. Mm. I don't know why I'm doing it here right now, but probably because of what was just said next to me. And as we went around the room, there was a third guy that the same exact thing happened to them. And he started talking about it also, but it also precipitated a very serious group discussion. So everybody took it upon themselves to make themselves vulnerable and share something that really affected their life. And that was really traumatic. Um, but for this one guy to say that this is the first time that I've ever been able to say this out loud, I got emotional. I, I'll tell you right now, I started crying. I couldn't contain myself because as a facilitator and somebody that's in these circles all the time trying to prevent suicides, um, I saw the process working wow. live, live right in front of me. And I yeah. became really emotional and because I was so proud of this guy and I was so proud of the group for providing the space for this guy, because I know that it's, it's moments like that, that could potentially save that guy's life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And to let, be able to let that amount of steam off in that very short period of time, um, I know took a lot of courage for that guy. Mm. And from personal experience, I know that until you get it out of your mouth and share it with somebody, that it just keeps eating at you and mm. deteriorating, you know, your psyche. And so I followed up with him over the next several days, um, the, that night. Um, and he, this guy drove like across two States to come to this meeting. He's been like three different times because they don't have any meetings anywhere near him. Um, and I checked with him the next day and the day after that, and he was, you know, seemed to be tracking. Okay. Um, but I have had people, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, because I don't do all the hard work. The group does all the hard work. Mm. Um, I've had guys that text me and call me and email me and tell each other that if I didn't have this group, I'm not sure I would be here right now. Wow. And I know what they mean. What they what they mean when they say that that they were contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. And so you know, you don't have to be a 26 year cop like me. Um, you don't have to be a blue star surviving mom like Linda. You just have to be a good human being <laughs> yeah. that will listen to somebody, listen to their story in a non-judgmental, safe, confidential way. You know, anybody can be a peer. Um, you just have to be a caring person and, and care enough to give a little bit of your time and your effort to somebody else. Um, because as first responders, you we, we all know, and you guys know you've been doing this for a while, we don't, we don't fake being sick or not well, we fake being okay. Mm, yeah. We are extremely 
fatally good at it. Oh, yeah. If, yes, you are. You're good hiders. Good actors, too. Um, I just wanted to start to add on to what you just said there, you know, giving someone your time. Um, you know, from my own experience, you know, being able to unload, you know, my own feelings, right? Having someone that's a good listener, just just being able to listen to you, you know what I mean? It's it's a huge, huge um, feeling that you know someone is just listening um, to you and, and validating um, how you're feeling. Not even offering advice, you know, just having an ear for someone to be able to listen to you is a huge deal for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what you provided in that group. I know you said, oh, I'm not doing, you know, anything there. I'm, I just have the, the key to the door, but the whole group, um, were able to actively listen. And, and even, even though those, that guy that shared this what happened to me and it was my first time that I'm saying this, he was also actively listening to someone else sharing their story which then gave him the courage and the strength to say, I, I have to unload this here because this is a safe place to me, for me and someone is going to listen um, with no judgment. Yeah, oh man, mm-hmm. the safe, the trust, the listening was all there in those components. That's a beautiful, right. powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Absolutely. And yeah. even, you know, even, even in a podcast like this, we don't know who's listening tonight mm. or who's going to listen to this after it's been edited yeah. and sent out. We don't yeah. know who's sitting in their basement with a, you know, a whiskey in one hand and a pistol in the other and might listen to this podcast and say, you know what, I guess I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. And there are people out there that are doing some good work to help me get better. Maybe yeah. I should give that a shot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you just never know. Yeah. So is there uh, contact information um, that you want to get out there or that we can share with our listeners how someone can reach out to you if they wanted to talk to you about their own story or be able to join in? I mean, this goes out internationally, right, um, this podcast. Um, we have listeners all over the place, right? Sure um, yeah, so if there was someone that wanted to listen um, to you or reach out to you or get more information about what you do with um, Forge Health, um, all about mental health and support and maybe even get just advice um, from you, how would sure. they be able to reach out to you? So I'm not afraid to put my phone number out there because I put it on my business card. My personal cell phone is on my business card and it's area code 603-325-5835. Mm. Um, my email is skilbreath at forgehealth.com. So it's S-K-I-L-B as in boy, R-E-T-H at forgehealth.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you Google uh, Forge VFR, um, the Manchester office, uh, or the Fort Devens office, which is my territory, will pop up, and you can always get me through the internet if you needed to. to. Um, I can also be reached at seankilbreth at gmail.com. So it's S-E-A-N-K-I-L-B-R-E-T-H at gmail.com. The good Irish way, right? Yes, absolutely. It sure is. And, you know, so going forward, I just want to ask you, um, you're doing a lot of stuff for everybody, a lot of stuff, and I'm sure that's how you're also able to to continue your healing, um, you know, and, and continue on that journey. But how are you doing? How are you doing today yourself? Um, so, you know, just talking with you right now, I'm exhausted. Um, 
And I have learned that, and I'm still learning. I'm not great at it yet, um, but I'm trying that I can't fix everybody. Um, I can't, I can't walk away every day after all these phone calls that I'm dealing with people on the phone or in person and, and own their problems. All I can do is what little that I can do for each person and hope to touch a lot of people. Um, you know, I always kind of tell people, you know, the story where the guy's throwing the starfish back into the ocean and this guy passing by is going, why are you doing that? You'll never save all these starfish. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. And the guy looks at the starfish and says, well, it matters to this starfish and he throws them back in the ocean. So that's all you can really do. And, you know, as, as peer and SISM um, people, we really have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and not owning everybody's problems and emotions because we can not only burn ourselves out so we can't continue to do the work, but also re-traumatizing ourselves with other people's stories all the time. Other people's so, traumas, yeah. So I practice mindfulness. I practice my breathing. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore. Um, when I feel myself getting worked up or anxiety, um, I go outside um, in nature a lot. I do a lot of hunting, which is to say I sit in my tree stand and just meditate for hours at a time and <laughs> Usually don't see many deer, um, but I make the time to do the things that I enjoy, whereas before I didn't. And, you know, I, you just have to practice what you preach. Um, yes. And just be mindful that, you know, when you feel yourself running out of gas, you got to take a break for yourself. Yeah. And be able to recognize that. Yeah, I'm run. I'm starting to run out of gas here, right? That's the yeah. important thing is being able to so recognize that. I, I see a therapist. Um, you know, I've been seeing a therapist for years. Uh, I actually have an appointment on Monday, first thing in the morning. That's how I'm going to start my day on um, is to see a therapist. So if there's, you know, I guess if there's any police officers, first responders, firemen, EMTs out there that are going to listen to this podcast, you know, you ha- I have to say to them that, you know, we're all in this together. You're definitely not alone. Um, a a sign of a strong warrior is to know when they're hurting and to reach out for help. Um, respect and love your loved ones enough to share with them when you're not doing well. Um, and I think you'll be surprised at the reaction that you get from your loved ones when you respect them and love them enough and feel safe enough to share some of this stuff with them. You'll find that not only will they understand, but they probably give you some really good advice and might understand better why you act the way you do um, and even adjust maybe the way they interact with you based on that. Um, But you have to give, you have to give yourself a shot and you have to give your family a shot to understand where you're coming from and give them, give them all the information that they need, whatever it is you're thinking about, you have to give your, them all the information, you know, if, if, you know, I, I hope this doesn't come out wrong, but perhaps, Linda, if, if your son had given you all the information of what was going on in his head, mm-hmm. it probably would have put you in a much better position to help him. Yes, absolutely. And I, I've shared that in previous podcasts. Like We've had so many, many, many conversations, um, you know, sitting out on the deck in the evening time, and, and he would share very openly, you know, how he was feeling. But he only let us in so much. um that's so much and if he had to let us in that little bit more um I definitely would have been able to um guide him 
um, for sure and help him. Yeah, and absolutely. We are, we are killing ourselves at a much greater rate than any bad guy could hope to out on the street. Mm. And that is, that is a, that is a shame. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, whoa, great conversation tonight. Yeah, it really was. Yes. Really great. Really absolutely. Was. Great conversation, Sean. And I, I know we met you at the first help walk. Um, you had a table there, all your information, and we hope to see you there again. But um, I don't think that this is going to be the last time we're going to be having conversations. Um, I think there's many people that are going to be reaching out and um, sharing with uh, how powerful message that you have. And, and uh, we'll definitely connect again, for sure. Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity. So hopefully we've reached somebody out there tonight. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being on and we, we look forward to, to uh, talking with you again, Sean. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for your service. Sean took us on the journey of a young officer eager to serve his community. Just like many young men and women starting out their careers in first response, he wanted to show his department that they had made the right choice in hiring him like many other first responders that we've spoken to. Pretty quickly, those calls that he was going on began to add up. But there was no way he was talking about any of that to anyone. He did not want to be looked at as weak. Eight years into his career, Sean experienced an officer-involved shooting. He described in detail the events of that incident and how it affected him afterwards. He continues to serve his community and also uses the experience of struggling with mental health challenges to help others. Sean runs a peer group for first responders. He's on the SISM team and at Forge Health, where he works alongside therapists. We thank Sean for his continued service. If you're a first responder listening now and you can relate to Sean's story, reach out. Please, it just might help you. If you're not sure where to turn, you can call one of the Hope Lines at 781-817-3357 or 617-657-9108. Till next time. Till next time.